Hello, and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University. Today I'm talking to Laura Hall, an instructor in the history program at SNHU and an archivist at the Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library in Austin, Texas. Today we will talk about her background, what life is like at a presidential library, and her advice for students looking to follow in her footsteps. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Laura Hall and I'm an archivist at the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin, Texas. And what is your academic and professional background? Uh, my academic background is I have a bachelor's degree in English literature from the University of Houston and I have a master's degree in public history from Texas State University. Um, I've worked in the museum field for the last 10 years. I started as a manager for a museum store and have worked in museum collections and in archives. The uh, manager at the museum store, was that as part of the National Archives system or was that a separate museum? Uh, that was a separate museum. That was the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum um, here in Austin and it was working for the state of Texas. And have you been based in Texas throughout your career so far? I have. And what have been your research and teaching interests so far? Um, my research interests are um, modern U.S. history, the post-war period. I'm also interested in public memory and sort of the way we remember sort of big events and how we use that to kind of shape our society and culture. I'm always amazed when I read books on public memory because I have no idea how I would possibly approach that myself. Yeah, it's one of those topics that's kind of squishy. I kind of focused a little bit more on this idea of civil religion. And so it's a little more modern, like I think that kind of came around in the 60s, but it's how we use institutions like presidential libraries as a way to kind of deepen our civil engagement. So when you say civil religion, are you thinking of hagiography of leaders like LBJ or, or other leaders, or are you think taking it in a different direction? I started with kind of the idea of hagiography of leaders, um, but it's also like it can go much further like into the park service and sort of this idea of like civil tourism and kind of what we do to kind of reinforce this idea that we're all part of one nation and one culture. So it's a way of building kind of a national identity? Right, exactly. Interesting. And what uh, is, is this taking the form of just your own personal research, or is this going to ultimately be like an exhibit at the museum or something like that? Um, it's just my own personal research. Um, when I wrote my master's thesis, it was kind of rooted in this idea of sort of how we use presidential libraries. Um, most presidential libraries are built uh, as soon as the administration is over, which when you are creating museum exhibits or doing history, um, that's not usually enough time to be very objective about your topic. And so I've kind of looked at the idea of like, what can we get out of these first exhibits um, since they aren't objective and really aren't what some would consider good history or even good exhibits, um, kind of what kind of meaning we can get if a president is building the exhibits as he's still in office. Okay, and let's, yeah, let's turn to the presidential libraries a little bit. So how did you end up at the uh, LBJ Presidential Library? I ended up at the LBGA Presidential Library as an internship. 
I worked for a summer on a museum inventory where we just handled objects and measured them and decided if they needed any sort of preservation work um, and updated the database to reflect kind of the current state of each object. At the end of the summer when my internship was over, there was still about another year and a half worth of work to do. And so I said, no, no, I won't leave. I'll just stay and keep working. Um, and so I was a volunteer for about a month and a half. And then they finally kind of were like, well, we'll try to figure out a way to pay you for this at least. And so it turned into a student employment opportunity. After that, I think I stayed for another year while I was finishing up my master's. And then about the time I was finishing up, they had a full-time archivist position. Um, I wasn't really planning on being an archivist. I was going to work in museums, uh, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity. So here I am, an archivist, five years later. I like the idea of just refusing to leave the job until they start to pay you. <laughs> it worked pretty well. It did. It did work pretty well. So what do you see as the differences between working in a museum versus working in an archive? You know, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, the Mostly, like, it's kind of the same principles, just instead of paper or objects, you're working with paper. I think the biggest difference, though, is sort of the purpose, the exhibit versus research. And so I, at first, was kind of not put off, but was a little disappointed that I wasn't going to be working kind of with a larger public. But it turns out that even working with researchers is kind of working with a larger public. Um, and it's very rewarding because it's a more one-on-one -on -one experience. And so I get to talk to people as they're coming in to start their research and discuss kind of what they're hoping to find and kind of point them in the right direction for the materials they're looking for. Um, and so to me, it's a little more fulfilling actually getting to do that than just sort of putting an exhibit up and kind of hoping or thinking like this is how people are going to take it or this is, you know, kind of the conversations we'd like to generate with this, but not really being a part of those conversations. So. And how do you describe, how would you describe a typical day in the, in your current job? Well, a typical day usually involves a meeting with researchers. Uh, is probably one of the primary functions that I have. Um, and either meeting with them in person or emailing or talking on the phone. Um, for people who want to come in or just want an idea of what sort of collections we have or what we have in the collections. So we do a lot of one-on-one -on -one work. Um, when I'm not working with researchers, then I'm working on processing collections, which means we, um, even though we are a 50-year-old archive, we still have collections that haven't been open or made been made available to the public. So I work on trying to get things processed, um, described, and preserved so that they can go on the shelf and be available for researchers who want to come in and look at them. The stuff that hasn't been released yet, is that generally stuff that was previously classified, or is it just stuff that people haven't got to yet because of manpower? It's a mixture of both. There, We have a few collections that are still classified to the point that it's not, like we haven't gotten around to processing it yet because you would just have a bunch of empty folders. Um, but for the most part, it's just stuff that we haven't gotten around to yet. We are actually still... Um, accessioning things. So we have people who are still like, oh, I worked with President Johnson. Here are my papers. And so we still have things um, that we just um, haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, okay. Well, I imagine it must be a massive enterprise to try to collect the 
all of the documents relating to a presidency with with I mean, Johnson was there for six years, give or take. So it's kind of yeah. hard to imagine how much paperwork is generated by him, but then also by all of the people that worked for him and worked with him. And so I can imagine that must be a monumental undertaking. Yeah, I think right now our number is 45 million pages of documents. So it's, it's quite a bit. Um, and then we've also got AV archives as well. So we have photographs and movies and audio recordings, um, lots of telephone calls, cabinet room recordings we're still working on, that sort of thing. So. Working with researchers must be an interesting gig. I always tell my students, uh, for part of my doctoral dissertation, I was working with, it, it was on Ronald Reagan, and so I spent some, mm -hmm. a couple of weeks at the Reagan Presidential Library out in California, and I always tell my students to, even, even if you have a th think that you know what you're looking for based on the finding aids, make sure to make friends with the archivist that handles those documents, <laughs> because you never know what you'll get. Uh, in my case, the archivist found some really cool documents that I didn't know about, but even more than that, she managed to get me some free tickets into the museum part of the of the library, and the, the Reagan Library, of course, actually has Air Force One parked in the middle of it, and so I actually got oh, yeah. to go on to Air Force One for probably the only time in my life. Oh, cool. Yeah, we definitely have things that are kind of um, hidden. I think one of the challenges is, especially being an older library, we don't have a lot of standard finding aids. Um, and so sometimes it's hard to even know like how many different collections we have or how many series and that sort of thing. It definitely helps to have someone kind of show you how the system works, especially since each library is a little bit different. So, Are finding aids generally created kind of like systematically, or are they just created kind of as a as an ad-needed basis where someone needs to find something, so someone puts together a kind of a small finding aid and then eventually it just kind of builds into a larger finding aid, or is it just, or is it more um, systematic than that? It's generally more systematic than that. Part of our problem is that, you know, our finding aids were started in the 1970s, our library opened in 1971. And there wasn't a systematic system in the 70s. And generally, as a practice, archives had finding aids. They were mostly folder title lists. And so we haven't actually gone back and sort of created a systemized set of finding aids. So what we have are a lot of folder title lists. And they don't look necessarily like what a modern finding aid would look like. So you don't have that kind of scope and content note. You don't have a biography of the people who are, you know, involved in the collecting. So they're a little more general and they're a little more tricky to use just because if you haven't had someone say like, oh, well, this is how this uh, collection works, it's not necessarily as systematic as it would be in sort of a more modern archive. And do you know, is there a plan in place to try to update that or is it just going to be kind of as you go along going forward? Um, we do have a plan in place. It is tied closely with our plan to digitize things. So there's a plan, but it's a 15-year plan, which is something that when I first started in archives, it was kind of wild to me. Like, wait, you're going to work on something for 15 years? What? I think that seems crazy. <laughs> uh, but apparently it's very common. So. Yeah, I, I've encountered that situation too in various bureaucracies and all that. Yeah, the idea of having a literally a long-term plan where they're talking into the decades or more, <laughs> it always does seem crazy yeah. at first, but 
then yeah, you wake up 20 years later and you've realized <laughs> that okay, I, yep, I've actually been here long enough to see you know headway made on that project. Yeah, as a procrastinator, it, it's a little scary for me, but. <laughs> right, um, yeah. When do you want to start that 15-year project? <laughs> I know, like 12 more years, it's fine. So uh, what advice do you have for listeners who want to break into your career? There's probably a lot of students uh, at Southern New Hampshire University and possibly even elsewhere that are listening to this podcast wondering how they might be able to follow the route. You said you started with an internship. Do you have any other type of advice to break into the field? Um, volunteer, 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 anywhere you can. Hands-on experience is one of the biggest things um, most employers are looking for. They don't care if it was working as a volunteer at your local historical society. Um, just being kind of familiar with what the job is and sort of the issues that will come up are huge. And it's something I volunteered at three different places before I started my internship. So it, it really helps to build your skill sets. Um, the other thing is, is don't be afraid to talk to people and tell people what you want to do. Uh, my experience with this field has been that it is very inclusive and people know a lot of people. And so you never know who you might be talking to um, and who they might know and can help you find where you want to get to. That's a good point. And I think that's true for a lot of history type professions is that it is a fairly small world that we all operate in. And I mean, especially I imagine with you with the presidential libraries being that there's a limited number of them. <laughs> there's, oh, yeah. I forget offhand how many there are, you may know, but there's, you know, there's only so many archives and so many archivists. And even if you add in all of the other national archives branches, I mean, there's still a fairly small world, I imagine. And so, yeah, getting oh, yeah. to know the right people, I'm sure would, would, would help immensely when it comes time to look for a job there. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I had a professor tell me in grad school that you should always have an elevator speech about kind of what you want to do and where you want to go. And at the time when he told me, I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, who like walks around with a speech in their head? But it actually was really good advice. Um, and it helped in a couple of ways. Uh, the other thing I would suggest is that, um, you know, a lot of these professional organizations have student memberships and it's a great time to kind of get involved in those um, because they're great ways to network and go to the meetings, especially for the, the smaller kind of regional organizations uh, because it's a really good way to kind of get to know different organizations in your area and to get to know people. And so, you know, if you have an interview with someone, it helps if you can walk in and be like, oh yeah, we met you know, two years ago at the Texas Museum Association meeting. And the other side of that was, I think I went to one workshop as a student just because I thought it was something that would be interesting. And when I was there, I like at the break, I was swarmed by people from organizations that were like, we really need volunteers. Like, can you come help us? We would love to have you. And I, you know, it's kind of a good feeling to have to tell people like, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, I'm much too busy volunteering at the <laughs> other place. They talk to me first, and <laughs> that, is, that is a good feeling. Uh, yeah. It would be nice if they were swarming you with job offers, but still, it's, yeah, still, it's yeah. still a nice feeling. All right, well, thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. And thank you to all the listeners for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, 
please send us an email to snhuhistory at gmail.com. Also, tell your friends and family about this podcast. Maybe hearing these stories will stop them from asking you why you're throwing away promising future employment in order to study history. Turns out, there are a lot of cool things you can do with these skills. Who'd have thunk it? Anyway, I'm Rob Denning. Thanks for listening.